Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, November the 3rd, 2022. Um, so enough, many of you are authors or you're you're very familiar with books. It's hard enough to write a book. And I think it's doubly hard um, to write a book with somebody else. And it's probably triply or quadruply hard to write a book with your spouse. Husband and wife writing teams um, aren't, as it happens, that unusual. We've had a couple in the past. The very distinguished husband and wife team of Peter Baker and Susan Glasser, two of America's leading political journalists, uh, we're on the show recently. They have a new book out, The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James A. Baker. I think they have a, a new book out since then, actually, on Trump. We hope to get them on the show. Uh, I also uh, more recently uh, had the husband and wife team of Sean French and Nikki Gerrard. Their best-selling uh, suspense mystery uh, horror writers. They have a new book out, The Favor. They've changed their name rather than Sean French and Nikki Gerard. They go under the name of Nikki French, and they spoke about how they inspired each other. In a sense, I guess they're a golden couple, like uh, Peter Baker and Susan Glasser. And as it happens, um, we are dealing with a golden couple who have a new book out called Egypt's Golden Couple. Uh, John and Colleen Darnell are two of uh, America's leading Egypt Egyptologists. They're, of course, married. And uh, they have a new book out, Egypt's Golden Couple. When, uh, and and, and uh, my pronunciation is going to be dreadful here. When Akhatenin and ne uh, Nefer... Titi were gods on earth, um, and they're joining me from Connecticut today, where John is on the Yale campus, and Colleen is at the family home. Colleen, latest, uh, latest first, let's start with you. What's it like writing a book with your husband, uh, the great John Darnell, about Egypt's golden couple? Do you as a golden couple, do you argue much as authors? <laughs> I would say no book writing process goes entirely smoothly, even if you're doing it by yourself. But we really had, well, I should say, I had a tremendous amount of fun. I'll let John speak for himself. But it really, I think the most exciting aspect of writing a book together is that you're constantly brainstorming. You're constantly going back and forth in terms of how you're going to pitch a certain chapter or how you will interpret a particular bit of evidence. And I think it made it a truly interactive process. And we hope that comes out for the readers as well as we show how we go about doing what we do. And that became then a part of the book. It's not the first book you've co-authored. You have a book, The Ancient Egyptian Netherworld, um, and another book more recently, uh, Tutankhamun's Armies, which you both uh, co-wrote. Uh, John, uh, what's it been like writing about the golden couple with your wife? Well, it's been, okay, so uh, it's interesting. Uh, both of us have encountered Akhenaten and Nefertiti 
separately in earlier work we've done over the years on uh, I've worked on cryptographic netherworld books. Uh, I've worked on Egyptian solar religion quite a bit. Um, Colleen has worked on the late versions of the netherworld books. I've even encountered Akhenaten in graffiti out in my work in the Egyptian deserts on desert road archaeology. So we already had a great sort of background individually and collectively working on Akhenaten. So we were drawn to the topic almost in the sense of inevitably we're going to have to write a book about them. So let's let's do it. And it's great to do it together. On the other hand, it's a difficult task because these are people who lived tremendously long ago when it comes to, let's say, writing a biography. So every single statement we make about those people, um, I feel we really needed, and I think we agreed on this, we really needed to back up. So it makes it impossible to write, let's say, what you might call a, a pop history of someone. If we impart emotion to one of the characters, almost inevitably, with very few exceptions, almost inevitably we're reading that into it. We don't have letters where, um, we, we do have some letters, but we have formal diplomatic correspondence. We don't have letters where Akhenaten said, you know, that guy I had to give the gold of praise to the other day. I really hate that guy. I wish I didn't have, we don't, we don't have anything like that. So as we were writing, I was constantly wanting to say, let's add more references, more references. We have to cite everything so that everyone knows that we're not making up this material. And then Colleen would have to keep saying, yeah, but we can't put that all in there. And we're trying to write a book that isn't just for scholars, that isn't just for people who have specialized in the field, but we also want to make this um, accessible to everyone. So I would say what, what we would disagree about were, were not the points we wanted to make or how we were interpreting the material or even necessarily how we wanted to present it in a, in a, in a broader way. What we really would argue about sometimes is how much detail and for me, it's like, yeah, the more, the better for the detail and the more specifics, the better. Um, so I'm very much focused on the trees and Colleen was a little bit more focused in this, at least on the, on the forest. And I hope it, I hope it works out. I think so. Well, the trees and the forest, uh, Colleen, um, given, and, and, and John's point, I think is a really interesting one, a very honest one, given how long ago this was and given that there's not always as much evidence as we'd like it's not like studying the founding fathers in america where we still have all their letters what would be wrong with just doing a, a fictional uh, book about egypt's golden couple since some of what you write is speculative and it can't really be proven what's the difference i mean you're both distinguished academics um you both have a a long history of writing scholarly articles but this is a this book is um is uh is is a bestseller already on amazon i mean it, it's 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 designed um to attract a broader audience what would be wrong with just writing a novel so in Egypt's Golden Couple, we present a number of groundbreaking and totally new translations of texts relating to Akhenaten and Nefertiti. And if we were to write just fiction, if we didn't have initial vignettes in the chapters and then pull back and say, this is why we're translating this word. Here's how we can interpret the art that it's not totally bizarre, but actually has precedence in the reign of Amenhotep III. If we didn't do that, I don't think we would be doing 
Akhenaten and Nefertiti justice. And that was part of, that was a, really the main goal of the book was to write a biography of the two of them together because you can't really talk about Akhenaten without Nefertiti and vice versa, although that's been done numerous times in the past. But we wanted to write a book where they would recognize themselves, at least to the extent that we can reconstruct what their lives were like, why they did what they did, and we have to fill in the gaps. And we mark that very clearly where we are speculating a little bit in the beginning of each chapter where we give Akhenaten and Nefertiti some personality and some dialogue. But in those bibliographic essays and the references that John mentioned, we talk about the archaeological evidence for every place where those vignettes are set, every artistic or uh, reference or monument or hieroglyphic text. And then in the more academic, the nonfiction aspects of it, we go chronologically from the reign of his father all the way through to Akhenaten's successor. But we think the only way to do them justice was to both bring them to life, but then also be 100% transparent about what sources survive, what sources don't survive, what we can say for certain, and where there is debate, and we have to just simply look at the preponderance of evidence. Um, explain the, the Tutankhamun link. It's a very intimate one, and it will... Um, everyone's heard of Tutankhamun, or I assume most of our audience would have heard of Tutankhamun. Not everyone will have heard of the two characters in your book. What is the relationship there? He, he is their son, is that correct? Or he was their son? All the evidence points towards Nefertiti being Tutankhamun's mother, but that there is no one single either monument or text that is extant, only a damaged inscription that labels Nefertiti as Tutankhamun's mother. So the genetic evidence, as well as those fragmentary historical records, suggest that she really was his mother. We know for certain that Akhenaten was Tutankhamun's father. But... How do you know when you say for certain? I mean, I assume you don't have any biological evidence, do you? There... Part of the problem is there's still debate over whether or not we have Akhenaten's mummy. In the book, John and I go with the most common interpretation that seems to be really supported by the evidence, which is that Akhenaten's body was found in this tomb where things had been reused, his name had been hacked out of the coffin, and it's the Valley of the King's tomb 55, right across the valley, actually, from the tomb of Tutankhamun. But there's also a hieroglyphic text that identifies Tutankhamun as the king's son of his body. So if the mummy really is Akhenaten from KV 55, King's Valley 55, and if this block really references Akhenaten, as it seems it does, then Akhenaten is Tutankhamun's father. And then the combination of evidence of a damaged hieroglyphic inscription, as well as the genetic evidence, also suggests that Nefertiti is his mother, but even the body of Nefertiti is uncertain. So we go through all of these complexities because it really is difficult to untangle the evidence. And every scholar who writes about Akhenaten and Nefertiti has a different take on each of those complex pieces of the puzzle. Let's bring John back. John, um, paint the, the broader picture, the timeline. Is this the glory days of 
uh, the e Egypt of antiquity? Are the two characters uh, in this book, are they the poster children, to, to put it rather crudely, for the greatness of this civilization? In a way, they so the the parents of Akhenaten are Amenhotep III and his wife Tia, and they reign at what you might call, in many ways, the the apogee of power of 18th Dynasty Egypt, of Egypt and the glory days of the early part of the second half of the second millennium BCE. Egypt really is the, the great power of the great powers in the ancient Near East, North Africa, and the Eastern Mediterranean. Amenhotep III has been compared, not, not inaccurately by a number of people, actually to uh, Louis XIV in a sense. He, he is the sun king. He even adopts the epithet for himself of Iten Chehen. That means the scintillating sun disk. And the sun had, it wasn't just a metaphor. It had symbolic and literal references. And the the Egyptian religion is at its heart a solar religion. And Amenhotep III benefits from the almost annual military campaigning of the earlier the III. He benefits from some diplomatic a maneuvering that appears to go on even during the reign of Tutmosis III's son, Amenhotep II. So the father of Amenhotep III, Tutmosis IV, and Amenhotep III inherit a relatively peaceful world, let's say, in the ancient Near East, East Mediterranean, North Africa. Egypt has gold reserves that boggle the mind. One of the foreign writers to the king of Egypt actually um, refers to the fact that the Egyptian ruler had sent him gold-plated wooden statues, and he's very unhappy with that. There's no reason the pharaoh can't send him solid gold statues because everyone knows in Egypt, gold is like the dust in the streets. You just go out and sweep it up. Egypt has in everyone's mind this just unlimited, boundless wealth. So when Akhenaten and Nefertiti come to the throne, they are the successors of an extraordinarily powerful couple who are the parents of Akhenaten. They're the successors of a pair who rule almost as closely together as Akhenaten and Nefertiti do. And one and of the things, a slave. I mean, in in, in sociolo sociological political terms, this is essentially a slave-based empire. When you talk about these people being gods on earth, that's again not metaphorical. It, they they were treated and they saw themselves as gods on earth. Is that fair? Well, so this is one of the interesting issues. So, um, so the issue of slavery in ancient Egypt or in antiquity in general is is rather difficult. Um, to compare, let's say, to more modern forms of slavery. We know for the ancient Egyptians that most of the difficult work that's being done in the quarries, et cetera, is not actually being done by slave labor. There is some corvée work. There is tax work being performed by farmers, especially when they can't farm when the river 
is flooded annually. But we don't have what you would have in the Greco-Roman period. The Nile, when you talk about the river. We, we don't have the, the damnatiad metala that you get in the, the Roman period. Uh, but when the king of Egypt is a god, is a rather interesting question. So the, the king represents the gods, and the king is the high priest of the gods, especially of the solar cult. During a festival, the king becomes what he represents, the queen becomes what she represents, the priests, the participants, all become those elemental forces that they represent. Outside of the festival, it's a little different. So the Egyptians have this um, what we would call, a, I guess, a myth of kingship. It's been compared to the medieval European concept of the king's two bodies. So the king is a human being. The Egyptians know this because every king dies. But the king has, as one of his spiritual elements, everyone has multiple parts to their personality, to their person. And one of these is the ba, that we often see as the human-headed bird, the soul bird. One is a thing called a ka that is sometimes rendered as double. And it's an aspect of yourself, but it's an aspect of you that you might call almost spiritual genetic material. It connects you to those who've gone before and those who come after. It can connect you to a family. It can connect you to a profession. So there's a ka of kingship that is handed down by, for the new kingdom, pharaohs by the god Amun, the old imperial god of Thebes. So Amenhotep III, the father of Afnan, already begins to play with this a little bit. Every king is supposed to celebrate something called a jubilee after 30 years of reign, where they rejuvenate their rule. And when Amenhotep III does that, he acts it out in an unusual way, and he changes his art form. So he does things similar to what Akhenaten does, but in this very theatrical way. So one of the things we wanted to point out is that Ahmad and Nefertiti don't come to the throne, inherit all this wealth and say, let's go squander it or, or do something strange. But they see what Ahmad's parents have done. And it's almost like they say, we're gonna continue this and we're gonna bump everything they did just up to that next level. Let, so let's bring Colleen back in. Enough, enough talk from the husband. Let's go back to the wife. Um, what about the idea of marriage, Colleen, in the Egypt of antiquity, particularly royal marriage? One has to assume, and I, I'm speaking from a position of profound ignorance, that, um, that the royals had uh, significant sexual pleasures of one kind or another. I mean, were these, they certainly didn't view marriage in a, in a 21st century sense of, of sexual loyalty or even emotional loyalty. Did they believe in the idea of love, for example? Absolutely, the ancient Egyptians believed in love. If we can take their love poetry seriously, which we certainly do in Egypt's Golden Couple, and John's done some beautiful translation translations of ancient Egyptian love poems. So it's actually fascinating. In ancient Egypt, marriage was an economic arrangement. And although religion and the temples were so central to ancient Egyptian life, 
there was no marriage ceremony that took place in a temple or had religious significance as far as we can reconstruct. So marriage was about living together. It does seem to have been, for the most part, about monogamous relationships, although the king is in definite exception to that because of the requirement to produce an heir. Akhenaten is unusual in that besides Nefertiti as his great royal wife, so the chief queen, he only has one other attested wife, a woman named Kia, who is yeah, occasionally is identified. The, uh, is this known as the, the younger lady or is that somebody else? So this is probably... Nefertiti. Uh, right. And that's where we go back and forth when I was talking about, about this identification of the mummies and, and this yeah. sort of merry-go-round of who is who. You found, I mean, the, 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 this, we have the remains of these people, at least, uh, from, from, of course, the pyramids. Um, I mean, these, these people were buried in pyramids, and this is where uh, their remains were found. The pyramids are quite a bit earlier in ancient Egyptian history. So in terms of chronology, roughly the pyramids at Giza are about 2,500 BCE, whereas when we're talking about the 18th dynasty, the, for example, okay, Tutankhamun comes to the throne. Yeah, there you go, with the chronology. So 1,300 years separates New Kingdom history from the pyramids and the pyramids were already ancient by the time of the new kingdom. So these mummies were found in the Valley of the Kings. Uh, they would have originally been buried in the Valley of the Kings. Some were still found in a cache within the valley. Otherwise, many of the royal mummies of the new kingdom were found in a separate cache tomb where they were reburied. But Akhenaten does seem to have been found in the tomb where he was reburied by Tutankhamun. Kia, we actually have no idea who she is uh, or what her origins are. So there, there's a tremendous amount of debate about that. She might even be uh, a foreign princess from the land of Mitanni. And to get back, though, to the idea of, of marriage, we know from contracts and legal documents in ancient Egypt that divorce was also a possibility and that women uh, who divorced their husbands could actually take some of the property with them. So marriage in ancient Egypt, I think, is much more similar to a modern institution than most people realize. Fascinating. Let's um, let's bring John back and let's get to the, the two characters in the book. Um, let's reverse genders here. Talk to me, uh, John, about uh, Nefertiti. What's so interesting? I mean, she looks like a beautiful woman. What's so striking why have you dedicated so much of your time to writing about her so what's interesting about nefertiti is first of all her name is an unusual name it means the beautiful one has come or has returned and it's not a name that we find commonly used by women in egypt so it's entirely possible that just as her husband amenhotep changed his name to ah in aten just about the time that Nefertiti first appears on the scene, sort of cusp of years four and five, regnal years of Akhenaten, it may be that Nefertiti is an adopted name, is a name that she took on to express their new religious arrangement. And I, I, we, we find it a little bit funny sometimes that people go, you know, we know something about Akhenaten, but we don't know anything about Nefertiti. But they don't tend to appear 
one without the other. It's very rare for them. In fact, Nefertiti appears by herself in a temple called the Hoop Ben Ben or the mansion of the solar monument. Um, she appears by herself. She's so important. So it's it's not like, uh, it's like you and your wife, Colleen, you're in separate places. If I was doing an interview with these guys, they'd be in separate places. It's like they're inseparable. So it's a, I guess you could say it's a little sexist when people say, well, we know about Ahnaud, we don't know about Nefertiti. Like, actually, we kind of know as much about one as the other. They present themselves as a unit in a way that no other royal couple do like in perpetuity throughout their their reign. They're together. Nefertiti is always with Ahnaud, and they always have their daughters. And you can come close to being able to date monuments if you can count the number of daughters to see how many you know show up on the monument. So one of the really interesting aspects of the Amarna period is, you know, to, to use a term that was applied to a similar um, uh, proliferation of female figures in an earlier tomb when Egyptologists said the owner of the tomb was a, apparently an extremely uxorious individual. Um, Akhenaten is really obsessed with the royal women of the family, and they are always there with him. So it is true, I think, that you can't talk about Akhenaten without Nefertiti and vice versa. Her crown, that blue, tall crown that she wears in the famous uh, so-called Berlin bust, that crown as such is not worn by anyone else. Now, there's a, a probable predecessor to it in a crown that appears on the head of Tia uh, in a couple of scenes, the mother of Ahnan. But primarily, that's her crown. Uh, now, it has an origin, and I won't get into that. Um, but it, as such, it's created for her to be a counterpart to the so-called blue crown or the war crown that's so often worn by Akhenaten. So she, she is special and she's not just special in our eyes, but she's special enough to have her own, her own headpiece. So it, it's, a, it's a really interesting period in which it really is a couple being presented. Yeah, I mean, I assume you wouldn't be as crass as to argue that somehow this is the first manifestation of, of, of female power. Uh, Colleen, what about uh, Ach? Uh, Henneton. Well, tell me about him. What's interesting about him in, in comparison, contrast with other male Egyptian rulers, kings? I guess I would say, what isn't interesting about Ahnan in so comparison to other <laughs> um, No, one of the things we actually do is so many times people have decided that Akhenaten is radical. He's a monotheist. He's done things that he did things that no other pharaoh did. He certainly looks unusual in comparison to over a thousand years of ancient Egyptian art and statuary. But so many of the things that at first glance seem revolutionary do have precedence in earlier ancient Egyptian kings. So he certainly distinguished himself and he went far enough in his alterations to solar worship in ancient Egypt, focusing exclusively on Aten, the god for whom he is effective in his own name, Akhenaten. He went far enough and so far beyond even what Amenhotep III, his father, did that Akhenaten was erased from history 
by the ancient Egyptians themselves. So he is definitely among the most hated rulers of ancient Egypt based on their own descriptions of what it was to be a king. And they often describe kingship not only being a mediator between people and the gods, heaven and earth, but the defender of Ma'at, which is justice, truth, cosmic balance. And apparently, according to ancient Egyptian metrics, Akhenaten did not follow Ma'at. He did not enhance Ma'at, but instead did the opposite. And for that, he was essentially damned in history. So he was a kind of Gorbachev. He, uh, he may have been loved by Egyptologists like you guys, but uh, not loved internally. Uh, is there anything that we can apply to the contemporary world? We did a, a show recently with an e Egyptian writer, Shadi Hamid, on the problems of democracy in the Middle East. I mean, clearly these people weren't democratic. They didn't have constitutions. They didn't have voting. But is there anything connecting Egypt's golden couple uh, and con the contemporary Egypt of 2022, Colleen? In This was a question that we asked ourselves before we started, embarked on the book project. And we decided that rather than telling the reader what the takeaway was, for the modern world, that we would tell Akhenaten and Nefertiti's story as it played out in history, as well as the ancient Egyptian reaction to it. But we leave it up to everyone to make their own connections to the modern world. But what do you think? <laughs> I, I honestly, I think it's such a complex topic that I, I would need to know a lot more about modern events in order to make that. It, it, I don't like pronouncing any sort of opinions on something for which I don't have complete grasp of the primary sources. So I will stick to, to ancient Egypt. John, I think you're willing to go out on a limb a little bit more. I'll, I'll tell you, you what I think is interestingly important for the modern world. Um, now, I do believe, just as Colleen said, that we talked about this, that we do think people should draw their own conclusions with regards to what ancient Egypt might tell us on its own terms for the modern world. There are certainly things they managed to do extraordinarily well for a long period of time. Their myth of the state in which whenever there's a civil war, it ends not with one side defeating the other, but it ends with the forces of order uniting the equal halves that have split apart. So I would say that Same their man. idea uh, that that one side beating another is simply in the end a reconciliation is a nice way to look at things but what i think is the better lesson for the modern world is the lesson of looking at the sources that we have because one of the things we have continually encountered and that we try to get across to people is someone can tell you in a book that we have evidence that Akhenaten was an incestuous monster and if you look at the information, the data on which that is based, it's based on two essentially phantom daughters who are created by ancient Egyptian stone workers when they remove the images of Kia and Kia's daughter and replace them with images of two of Akhenaten's daughters. And the daughters then become little versions of the slightly older daughters. It's on the basis of very questionable, limited 
evidence that sometimes great broad um, and sweeping statements are made about people in antiquity like Afnan. And I would say that this is a cautionary thing for anyone dealing with historical characters, ancient, medieval, early modern, or of today, is be careful not only on, of the sources you're using, but check to see what are the sources of your sources, because it's very easy for misconceptions to go around. So many times we've seen in the literature where Egyptologists who are doing very good work or archeologists who are really getting into the sources have misinterpreted because they've come to a crossroad and they said, well, it could be this or it could be that. Yeah, I'm gonna go with that because that's what I, I, I that fits the Akhenaten I think I know rather than the Akhenaten I ought to be seeing in the sources. So for the modern world, check your sources and check the sources of your sources. Check the sources, check the sources of your sources, a, a degree of scientific analysis, but there's an artistic quality, certainly to the two of you. Uh, when I'm talking to you, I feel like, uh, and for people just listening, um, both John and um, John and Colleen, they look like characters who have just walked out of a, an Agatha Christie uh, novel, Death on the Nile. Some of you may have seen the 2022 film by... Uh, uh, Kenneth Branagh, you have a certain style away. What kind of image are you trying to portray? Do you always dress and look like this? I mean, you obviously look like this, but you look, if not like the golden couple, certainly you have an aristocratic, unusual quality to yourselves. Is this just style or are you trying to articulate a message, tell the world something rather? You've also had one or two of your own celebrity scandals. For us, vintage fashion, and we've, we've said this multiple, multiple times, it is how we feel most comfortable in terms of silhouette and what we just think fits us the best. So it, it's really about just the sorts of clothes we enjoy wearing and, and certainly not anything uh, beyond I don't that. mean it critically. I mean, I love it, actually. <laughs> I mean, you're a million times more interesting than most of my guests, certainly more, more interesting than I look. Uh, so I'm not in any way critical. I'm just curious. I, I mean, I, you know, I, um, my parents were quite old when I was born, so they dressed me rather archaically to begin with. Um, and I have just found over the years, as Colleen said, that clothes of certain, you know, we always tell people this, there, there are periods perfect for everyone, no, no matter, you know, how they look or want to look or, or body shape, etc. There, there are styles and periods that work for everyone. And one of the great things about vintage and vintage clothing is not only is it green, not only it is the antithesis of fast fashion, but everyone can find the period or periods that just make them feel the best when they wear them. And that's what it is for us. It's all about like how I feel like I look and, and, and how I feel wearing what I'm wearing. I think that's the same thing for Korean too. And fortunately, so that works. Yeah, well. I'm assuming at Yale, which is a rather straight lace place, um, that y your, your performance, your image could be seen as quite controversial. Uh, how do other Egypt, Egyptologists think of you? I mean, you probably don't always know, but... Uh... Oh, I kind of don't care. I gave up. Like, I always tell people, like, you know, I, I never let anybody bully me about how I dressed when I was a little kid, so I'm not, <laughs> not going to start now. 
so I think, you know, once again, we, we do it really just for ourselves and how it feels for us. Um, but it's the formality, the formality of your appearance comes through also in your work and your approach to the world. When you're, when you're on site, I mean, I assume for this, for this book, you, did a, you spent a lot of time in Egypt and in the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, you have, you know, I have some friends who have, a, who are archaeologists too. I don't know if you would call yourself archaeologist, but there's a certain world, a culture which sets you off from other people, not you two, but the, the, the profession. Is that fair, Colleen? So we definitely do archaeological work with John's expedition uh, twice a year. And, and there it's long sleeve white shirts and khaki pants. So it's entirely practical and for this book, we were mostly doing research that was material in libraries and reading hieroglyphic texts, interpreting the art. We did visit each of the sites that we talk about in the book uh, at least twice in the process of writing. But the archaeological work in Egypt is mostly about uh, discovering desert roads and finding sites along those roads, which is really very exciting. And, and one of the sites is in the epilogue, right? Um, we, we end actually, interestingly enough, uh, with one of the sites that we discovered in, I think it was 2017. Um, I think it was in, uh, I think it was in spring of 2000, the oldest uh, datable hieroglyphic inscription. And it actually fits in a way with, well, it fits entirely with the story of Akhenaten because it's really the first expression in writing that we have from ancient Egypt that I know um, of this equation of royal power and solar power, that the, the yeah. sun god maintains equilibrium in the sky and the king is set on earth to maintain that equilibrium, to maintain Ma'at. And that, that, that final great thing is how the ancient Egyptians judged Akhenaten. And he was deemed, as Colleen said, not to have made Perhaps the closest thing to Akhenaten in today's world is Elon Musk, who is a different kind of sun god, different kind of wealth, but a similar interest in the sun. I mean, certainly Akhenaten disturbed the status quo. Certainly he must have believed he was doing something um, he must have believed he was doing something truly revolutionary. Most of the actions he took were things, were, were done in fields and areas where you would expect the king to do something. The king is expected to oversee how the gods look, to decide what the statues should or should not look like. Um, he is supposed to interpret the solar religion. He's supposed to do research, find out how buildings should look. So when Akhenaten says we're going to have a new type of architecture, we're going to have a new type of statuary, we're going to have a new type of relief art, we're going to have a new religious expression of solar power, etc. These are all things where the Egyptians would say, okay, this is not unexpected. I'm, I'm not going to be shocked out of my sandals yet or something. But the, the degree to which he takes it is the, the, the extreme, um, the extreme cult of self of Akhenaten and Nefertiti, where it is all about that. It's not just all about them in the festival, but it's always all about them. And there's no other priesthood, really. Very, very limited evidence mm. of this. But finally, um, has there been any response to, to, to your latest book in Egypt itself? Has, 
I assume there is, is there an Arabic version yet? Maybe there will be one, but I assume that some people have read it in Egypt. So because it was just published, it we're bringing a lot of copies <laughs> into Egypt. We're looking forward to sharing it and already have uh, with some of our colleagues in, in the preprint uh, version. And it, it's really exciting to be celebrating the 100-year uh, anniversary of the discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun, particularly with the soon-to-be-opened Grand Egyptian Museum and how all of the objects will be displayed together in in the new museum. Yeah, I hear the, these are the new reasons to visit Egypt now. Congratulations on this, this new book, uh, uh, Egypt's Golden Couple. Quite an achievement. You guys, as I said, are perhaps uh, America's uh, archaeological golden couple. What else would you uh, suggest people read? What do you guys enjoy when you're not writing about the ancient Egyptians? Do you like Agatha Christie or is it a bit facile for you? I would say the latter. <laughs> oh, it's still fun. It's still fun. Um, I mean, I personally, I'm, I'm quite an aficionado of uh, Victorian and Edwardian uh, supernatural and weird fiction. Wow. The, the, the great stories of M.R. James that everyone knows and some of the lesser lights in the field like Benson, etc. Um, even Amelia Edwards, one of the, the founder really of the Egypt Exploration Fund um, in, in Great Britain, Egyptologist in her own right. She also was an author of Victorian. Wow. Uh, and um, uh, Colleen? I, I, I'm always collecting and reading in that. Yeah. Uh, Colleen, do you read any contemporary writers, any novelists or, or nonfiction writers? I absolutely go with uh, nonfiction and I, boy, just really widely. I, I like to read about religious history. I like to read about economic history. Uh, my current read is the, the Price of Time, which I find absolutely fascinating, the, the study of interest. So yeah, I, I'm we, we had the author, uh, Chancellor, on the show. So I, I know that book. 